Now we're coming up to 8.46 into the weird and wonderful world of science and technology. Well, at least when Mark Zastro's at his best. Science journalist in the studio, good morning. Good morning, Alex. But um, we start with NASA's Cassini probe last Friday. It ended its 20-year mission by crashing into Saturn, bringing to a close what scientists say is one of the most successful space missions ever. Why so successful? Uh, it, it's true. This It's not just hyperbole. Cassini really was one of the most stunning missions uh, that NASA has had, maybe since the Voyager probes back in the 1970s. And, and that was, of course, the very first time that we had sent spacecraft to the outer solar system. But they basically just flew by all those planets once, right? There was only one chance to take images and data of each of those planets. But Cassini spent the last 13 years orbiting Saturn, uh, making flybys repeatedly of the planet and its rings and also its moons. And it sent back some spectacular images of, of Saturn, those rings. It actually taught us a lot about Saturn's magnetic field and the aurora that are at its poles. And it also, at the very beginning of its mission, it put a secondary spacecraft, a little lander, down on the surface of one of Saturn's moons. Uh, but maybe the biggest discovery of all that Cassini gave us was that it completely changed how we think about the prospects for life in the universe because it showed us that moons like Saturn's may actually be some of the best places to look for alien life and not alien life in the past, but maybe even alien life today because at least two of those moons, Titan and Enceladus, have oceans of liquid water underground beneath their icy surface. And nobody was really expecting this. Nobody was seriously thinking about those moons as a potential habitat uh, habitat for life today. These underground oceans, what are they? How did they even find them? So, so all these moons are basically like little ice balls or snowballs. Uh, for example, Titan is only about the size of Earth's moon, and it has this outer icy shell. But then the inside is almost all melted water. There is actually more liquid water beneath the surface of Titan than there is in all the oceans on Earth. Actually, there's 10 times more water on Titan, liquid water, than there is on Earth. And at Enceladus, which is much smaller, it's only about 500 kilometers across, you still have an underground ocean that's about the size of the Mediterranean Sea. So on both of these moons, that means you have water and you have heat if the water, if, if it's actually liquid, if it's melted. So that means there must be heat inside the moon. And those two ingredients, water and heat, that's really all you need to sustain life. The caveat here being probably not the sort of life that we're going to have a chat with. Probably, Right. We're talking probably microbial life, maybe, you know, perhaps something slightly more complex. But still, uh, if we are able to find it, if we're ever able to send a mission that's able to drill down, take samples in these oceans, uh, there is the potential many scientists feel to actually discover alien life, maybe within our lifetimes. Now, just the, the way Saturn found this out, I have to say, too, because it was one of the most spectacular images that Cassini ever sent back was one of its very first flybys of Enceladus. It actually flew past that moon, and then it looked back uh, where it was lit against the sun. And the sun was backlighting these incredible geysers that were coming from the south pole of Enceladus. So you could actually see the water from this ocean spewing out through cracks in the ground out into space. And later, Cassini actually flew through that plume to confirm that it was liquid water. So that's how scientists really first realized that that was potentially a habitable moon. 
And as far as these moons are concerned, um, what's next? How do we uh, go a little bit further to, to probe the existence potentially of these microbial life forms? So there is no there. right. There is no mission at the moment to go back to Saturn. There's nothing planned. Uh, but there are some people in the U.S. Congress, some politicians who are very supportive of the idea of going to Europa, which is one of Jupiter's moons. And that also is very similar in structure to Titan and to Enceladus, where it's an ice ball and it has liquid, a liquid ocean underneath. So there is support gathering for a mission that actually would be able to at least fly by and try to look for chemical markers of life. It wouldn't actually be able to drill down into the ocean yet, but that would obviously would be even better. Yeah, because even with the chemical signatures, I mean, that would take us to another step, of course, but people right. it will could actually want to confirm. Know. I mean, it, it, it could give us a very good sense, let's say, put okay. it that way. Um, but turning back to life on our planet, which definitely exists, <laughs> um, uh, unless we're going to start talking about holograms and things like that, um, it, it's under threat from climate change. A new study has identified one of the most vulnerable types of animal, not warm and cuddly, not likely to evoke much sympathy, but rather parasites. That's right. According to a new study in the journal Science Advances, parasites are facing a bleak future thanks to climate change. Uh, we're talking about things like lice and fleas, tapeworms, ticks. Almost one-third of these species could go extinct by the year 2070. Now, to make that estimate, scientists actually studied the library of parasites at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History in the U.S. It has a collection of 20 million parasites. And they looked at over 450 different species, and they calculated what would happen to them in a changing climate. Where could they survive? And based on the average prediction of climate change, so we're not talking the worst-case scenario, we're just talking the average scenario, that's where they get that number that almost one-third of all parasite species could be gone by 2070. They seem so hardy, so resilient, parasites, by and large. Um, but um, then again, I don't think, as you suggested, or as we suggested in introducing this story, that uh, ticks and fleas going extinct will upset all that many people. Yeah, I don't think too many people will be worried about them because, you know, nobody really likes these critters. But the crucial thing here, or the, the, the unfortunate thing, is that they do play a very important role in ecosystems. By some estimates, if you look at the food webs of various ecosystems, parasites actually make up about 80% of the links of those connections. And not all of those links are that obvious. Uh, for example, there are some parasites that can actually influence the behavior of their hosts. So there's a hairworm that lives on Japanese grasshoppers, for example, and it actually is able to affect their minds and it causes them to jump, the grasshoppers, to jump into the water and drown. And because they do, those grasshoppers then become a crucial source of food for some endangered fish species. So if you take away those parasites, you're really disrupting this whole ecosystem with you know, lots of consequences for bigger animals. And also, you're a grasshopper, though. You're going to be That's true. The grasshoppers will probably be, well, yeah. You'd be a happy grasshopper if, if that parasite right. were not in Don't want hairworms living in your area. But what you're saying is, I think, even more interesting because it, it um, draws on some of the research that I've been reading about, about parasites and bacteria and the way they influence us and our human behavior. Mm -hmm. 
because of the neurons that exist throughout our digestive tract. And, and if you remove all parasites from the human equation, that could be quite profound, or, or even if you just remove a, a significant portion of them. Certainly, yeah, changing the, the, the actual bacterial makeup of our microbiomes. Exactly yeah, that right. Would be, um, that, that is certainly something. I mean, so, some people deliberately infect themselves, if infect's the right word, with bacteria. Mm. Uh, uh, sorry, well, yes, bacteria, probiotics, but uh, with worms, <laughs> with parasites, as a way of alleviating symptoms of um, IBD and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting form of therapy. Um, well, finally, we've talked about self-driving cars before. We've not really got to the stage where we can say self-driving cars are, are a thing. But um, just before we're even there, we're already now talking about self-driving boats. That's right. Last week, a Boston-based company called Sea Machines announced that it is going to develop and install a self-driving system on an ocean-going commercial container ship. And it's going to do it within the next three years. So this ship will sail back and forth across the Atlantic, uh, carrying cargo, but no crew. It will be remotely controlled from land. Now, they haven't announced who their shipping customer is, uh, but they, this company says that they are going to try to be the first to bring autonomy to container ships. But as you say, they're really just one player in this sort of global race to build autonomous boats, according to an Associated Press feature that ran last week. Self-driving boats are a thing, and they're becoming even more of a thing. Norway and Finland have actually approved zones in their waters as testing zones for self-driving well, it, boats. It should be easier than negotiating a busy highway. That's right. It should be much easier, right? Uh, and in fact, I think that's partly what's driving the adoption of it. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, happening in this arena just because it's technologically a little bit easier. Uh, the challenges are ha- have to do with security. What do you do uh, to ward off pirates, right? Would a self-driving boat be a more inviting target for pirates? Uh, could they be even hacked remotely? Those are the kinds of challenges that the self-driving ship industry is going to be grappling with. Yeah. On, on the other hand, you don't have... Um human crew to worry about in terms of defensive strategies. That's true. But what are the ethics of putting self, you know, autonomous weapons on yeah, a ship well, to defend? Well, what are the ethics it's, of piracy? But yes, right. I, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, as long as they're aware of the warnings, that uh, they'll have to be aware of what they're dealing with. There. Uh, a, a, a true ghost ship, potentially with great defensive capability, sounds mm-hmm. like something I wouldn't want to mess with anyway. Mark Zastro, Science and Technology, thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. And that's why I'm not a pirate. Um, we are holding our Mini World Cup, as I said, this coming uh, Sunday. We'll be telling you more about that and all our other announcements throughout, and we'll be back tomorrow at 7.05.